You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. On today's episode, I speak with Ali Tomasip, who's a partner at DCVC, a Silicon Valley VC fund with over $2 billion under management. The investments Ali led on behalf of DCVC has generated an enterprise value of over $6 billion, and the companies he sits on as a board director employ over 3,000 people. He has seven publications, including two books, five academic papers, and holds several patents and has won medals in national and international physics and computing Olympians. Ali and his work have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, BBC, Fortune, Guardian, The Telegraph, and Forbes, among others. And he's given keynote talks at major events and conferences. In today's episode, we focus on his latest book, Super Founders, What Data Reveals About Billion-Dollar Startups. It became the number one best-selling venture capital and startup book and is published in over 50 countries and is being translated into over 10 languages. He spent four years personally compiling and quality checking the data. He gathered information in two sets. One, VC-backed unicorn companies are those with large exits. And two, VC-backed startups that raised at least $3 million. The second set is his baseline saying the average or the typical VC-backed company. And then he's comparing the results He's comparing the inputs, he's comparing what's different about the founders or the company's situation between these two sets, seeing where there are significant differences. We have a fascinating conversation, which I think will blow up some of your myths you might have about what it takes to be a super founder. We discuss the number of co-founders, founders staying CEO, whether first mover is an advantage, what happens when you have competition the importance of timing. And we talk about how success is so rarely overnight. He also suggests areas that he thinks founders should be building in for the future. So listen all the way to the end to get those tips. I think you'll enjoy this. So please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good, Ollie. Thanks so much for coming on. Awesome. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about your book and other things as we get into it. Maybe we could start what is the biggest misconception people have about what it takes to be a great founder? Well, there, there's a bunch that I go into the book that it's 16 chapters about, about a lot of these misconceptions. One that I like is about domain expertise. So a lot of kind of investors or a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, think that they need to have come from the industry that they're going to disrupt or that that would help them. It turns out, you know, only 30% of founders of unicorn billion dollar companies did come from the same industry or worked more than one year in the same industry before. The other people, they did have work experience. They had on average 11 years of work experience. They had started companies, they worked in you know other companies or startups, but most of them, 70% of them had not worked in the same industry before. And I think that's, that's one thing that's kind of you know interesting to me. Right. So you don't have to be an expert. In fact, maybe the lack of locked-in entrenched knowledge about a particular industry might help you find new ways of doing things. 
It might be possible, yeah. So again, the data isn't suggesting there is a advantage to not having expertise or not being an expert in that area specifically. It mostly suggests that, you know, a lot of soft skills, the, the ability to sell, the ability to recruit, the ability to raise money, having experience being a founder before, having worked in certain types of companies before, those are things that are more helpful. And those are things that would help you bring the right domain experts, bring the right domain expertise, like learn the right things for yourself. But when you look into kind of macro and, you know, all the billion dollar companies that we have, it's only 30%. Uh, of these founders who did come from the same industry before. And one of the other things you looked at is, do you have to have personal experience with the problem? Is it important that you know it as a founder and have that passion, which certainly some investors do believe? Yeah, 100%. That's that's also another big, big misconception, I would say that, you know, and it mostly comes from the way media portrays and, you know, I, in the book, I talk a lot about, you know, the impact of media and interviews on our perception and the impact of, you know, a couple of stories that we've heard anywhere from the story of Zuckerberg or Bill Gates, you know, the big ones. But we have, you know, right now we have a thousand unicorns and a lot of those stories don't look like the top five that, you know, are more famous and a lot of people have read about. One of these misconceptions is that these founders experience the problems personally. It's like this kind of idea of, Founder has been struggling with this problem for 10, 15 years. You know, in one of the interviews I, that I did, somebody told me a very interesting example that, you know, a, a person has been storing things in their closet since they were, they were a kid and now they're, you know, they've grown up and they start a cloud company, you know, cloud storage company and somehow try, try to connect the dots here. You see a lot of these kind of stories that, you know, because these, these stories sell, you know, when entrepreneurs are trained. When they're talking to media, when they're talking to investors to kind of, you know, try to connect dots and make a good story out of this. But I went deeper. I, you know, went all the way in, tried to understand, okay, what is real? What is not? Interviewed a lot of founders, go to the very early days, how these companies' ideas changed and pivoted. And it turns out, you know, a lot of these things are just stories that entrepreneurs have post facto when they're successful and try to connect a lot of dots. But in fact, you know, they were looking for a good idea. They wanted to be, you know, I don't know where they wanted to start a, com a company. They found some a great group of co-founders and they looked for a good problem. They ended up finding it and, you know, went to, to be great. One example of this is DoorDash. I mean, it, it feels like there's, there's, there's a lot of dots here. You know, the founders, parents had a restaurant and, you know, the kind of delivery and stuff somehow relates to that and somehow comes up in stories. But when you go to the early days, basically, you know, Tony and the other three co-founders of DoorDash, they were MBA students, they were looking for problems. They went on, they walked in downtown Palo Alto, they, they talked to every small business owner. And they tried a couple of different ideas from customer satisfaction and a lot of different things. And then they ended up, you know, on the idea of, you know, delivery around on-demand delivery and, you know, what became DoorDash. So this kind of, the dots didn't exist in the beginning. They were looking for a problem to solve. They did a lot of customer interviews. They found what they had to solve. And then post-facto, when we look back at it, you know, we see some connections there. Right. It's certainly been a theme on this podcast. We've talked with founders who tell the real story about how they had a team first. They had someone they wanted to work with. Yeah. They wanted to build something together. And then they go in search of the right company to start. Exactly. And, you know, e even, even there is, there's a little bit of a, a stereotype in, in what we said that, you know, a lot of these people built a team first, right? 
And that's, that's correct. But you know, there's this negative connotation around solo founders around, you know, starting a company on your own. And again, when I looked into data, one out of every $5 billion company was started by a solo founder, just one person, you know, they had a good idea. They started solo. So again, and then I, you know, compared the data between unicorns and non unit like companies that raise venture capital funding, but did not become a unicorn. Again, there's no difference in level of success between solo founders or, you know, two founders. It ends up being, you know, one out of every five or 20% of these unicorns are solo founded. And how do you think about that 20%? Is that high or low? What do you compare it to? It depends on your prior misconceptions. If you, you know, if you as a person have thought that, you know, the solo founders do not succeed or a lot of companies, you know, are not started by solo founders, investors shouldn't fund them. You know, it, it might be high, it was higher than what I expected going into this kind of data exercise, but I think it's the right number. And again, I have two sets of data. I have data on all unicorns and I have data on every venture backed company that, you know, a few of them became unicorns and most others, you know, failed or very smaller exits. And when you compare them, you know, you see actually investors do invest in solo founders 20% of the time and, you know, ends up being that 20% of unicorns are solo founders too. So there's no advantage or disadvantage to this specific number of co-founders. They say that the study finds there's no correlation between number of co-founders and the exit outcome or the, you know, whether or not this company becomes, you know. Yeah, which is really interesting. I've advocated on this podcast that having a co-founder has a lot of emotional benefits and supporting each other and other benefits in keeping you um, in the game and persisting. But this data seems to suggest maybe that's not as valuable as I've argued. So I'm really curious about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it has been valuable for 80% of these billion dollar companies. So it's, it's certainly there. There's a ton of, you know, great thing, you know, starting starting company with a couple other people. I would recommend that to entrepreneurs as well. But it's like, you know, if you don't find it, it's okay. And you can still become successful. That's what, what I'm trying to, you know, demystify in the book. And then there's also, you know, on the other hand of this equation is co-founder conflict is one of the biggest reasons companies die in the very early stages. So it's like, you know, there's emotional support, there's a larger network that you can tap into, there's a larger group. But on the other hand, ego and co-founder conflict and a lot of these things kill companies. So there's, you know, two sides to the equation. I think the statistic from Professor Norm Wasserman is that something like 60% of startup failures can be traced back to team issues. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that is the majority. I mean, I feel like that plus not being able to raise money should be, you know, the top reasons companies fail. What do you make of thoughts around founder and CEO staying the same person? Yeah, I am a big advocate for that personally. I think when I invest, I always invest believing this this entrepreneur, this current CEO and founder would remain the CEO and take this company public and, you know, even afterwards. If I don't see that in an entrepreneur, I'm not going to invest. Now, there's a lot of my colleagues, there are a lot of peer investors that do not believe that. They they say, you know, it's a great founder, let them build the technology, let them build the early stage of the company. And, you know, probably not the person to lead this company after Series B or C or when it's going to publish. I never invest in that situation if I kind of know that there might be a case because I think it's it's a very big leap, you know, changing if, you know, bringing someone else to the company going through that motion, sometimes you're forced to, I mean, sometimes there's fraud, sometimes there's, you know, family issues. There, there are things that happens and, you know, you, you don't have, you know, 
anything else that you can do. But if you go in a company and invest in a company with the mindset that, mm. you know, the CEO is great for the next three years and then we need another CEO, I, you know, that's at least not my style. And when I looked into data, the trend is becoming better, at least, you know, better in, in the definition that I have that, you know, more and more original founding CEOs are staying on as the CEO when they, they take their company public or they get it to an exit of a billion dollar plus. The trend has shown that, you know, over the years and over the decades, this number is just going up and up. And also there's a, there's a ton of research and also my data confirms that when the founder CEO remains the founder, the, the, the CEO, these companies end up becoming larger outcomes. So even if it's a, you know, two unicorns, it will be a larger unicorn. I think in one study I read, on average, public companies with the original founding CEOs are valued 17% more. Now, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of biases and survival biases. There's a lot of, you know, nuances to that statistics, but generally there's, there's this trend that that's there. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned survivalship bias. I've written about this on my blog, VenturePatterns.com, that this tight correlation between more successful companies having original founder and CEO I think could possibly reflect a lot of survivorship bias because if the company's not doing well, you might get replaced. And if you're not replaced, maybe that means just that the company's done well and which caused which. It's so exactly. hard to untangle. Exactly. Now, there are some studies from academic groups that have, have taken a shot at being able to, you know, at least reduce the survival bias part of this and try to deduce some sort of correlation causation relationship here. But you're right. I mean, it's very hard in, in startup land and these kind of things that you cannot run a controlled study to remove a lot of these statistical problems that end up with, you know, and in the book, I, I never claim anything that's causal. I say, this is the data. We have it. We see a trend, but I'm not claiming any of these things are causal. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned that as well. So if you were to put your sort of hack academic hat on, what would you say about the caveats or the things to be aware of in looking this data and not taking it too far. Yeah, I mean, one, the, the number of unicorns that we've had is still limited. I mean, we, we have a couple hundred unicorns. Now there's a thousand, but when I did the study, it was much less than that. So the data isn't big enough to be statistically sure about everything. Now, I did one thing that kind of this, this type of study didn't exist before, before this, uh, my study in the book which is I have two data sets. I have every venture, you know, venture backed companies raise a minimum of $3 million. That's my baseline. And then I have that group of them that became unicorn. So I can kind of reduce some of these statistical errors to some extent. We can see, you know, how the two groups differentiated. And I have, you know, looked into, you know, 95% confidence intervals and a lot of, you know, uh, statistical tests on these, you know, results that I have. And removing some of these errors with uh, multiple comparison testing problems. So I've done a bunch of stuff to try to remove this. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, when you read this data, it's like, you know, what this is the current state of the errors. And this is how startups that raised money were. And this is what startups that became unicorns are. And you can see some trends, but, you know, that's, that's basically it. You shouldn't take it that much more than that. You shouldn't necessarily change your the way you operate your company based on this data, but it's you know, helpful to contextualize yourself as an entrepreneur on you know, how you stand compared to the rest. How is your idea or market dynamics or competitive landscape stand against what's the norm being 
among unicorns and you know, venture funded companies. I think you go a long way to breaking up some of the myths and stereotypes people might have about what it takes to be a successful investor. And I commend you for that. It's really encouraging to see. I also think as the stories around what is the quote unquote right or best kind of founder change, that changes the game as well. So there's some reflexivity to this whole situation. Right. Yep. Now, one of the things that uh, you studied is that raising more money does lead to a higher chance of success. Now, I'm curious for your thoughts on that. Yeah. So the, the right way to frame that is companies that ended up becoming these billion dollar companies on average had raised more money and had raised money faster than companies that did not become unicorns. Again, there's, there's a lot of causality problems and you know, biases problem. So setting that aside, it's mostly kind of looking at it at, in reverse, right? A lot of these companies that became successful had raised a ton of money at high valuations in fast intervals, and that's okay. It's like, you know, a lot of investors may think that, you know, just because a company is raising money at fast intervals, or just because a company is raising money at the very high valuation, or just because a company is raising, you know, before it's metric, you know, a lot of these reasons at a portfolio level that may cause problems. But when you look at these, you know, outlier companies, the companies that broke out, a lot of them had raised, you know, series A rounds for very expensive valuations. And they ended up, you know, sustaining that and becoming, you know, Facebook is a great example of that, you know, I think a hundred million dollars series A valuation for the time being, it's you know, crazy. And a lot of, you know, other, other very successful companies that I think that the statistic was they raised rounds that were at least two times larger than the average uh, startup group, and they raise money one and a half times faster uh, than the average startup. So you see a lot of these trends that, you know, these fantastic are, are able to sell their story well, have the correct connections and, you know, resources to go raise money faster and raise more money. It's interesting because the unicorn definition is defined by fundraising success. Yes. So you, exactly. it's somewhat circular, perhaps. It definitely is. It, in the data set, I definitely eliminated a company that, you know, became a popcorn, lost its unicorn allegation. And, you know, any company that did it sustain it or it's kind of, you know, a zombie problem. And again, when I did this study, we didn't have this recent wave of, you know, a ton of unicorns that I don't necessarily believe, you know, deserve the valuation they have or the amount of money that they've raised. It, it was a little bit of a more modest when, when this study was done. You know, I think the numbers kind of stand a little bit more stronger, but you're right. But also I studied the kind of the percentage of these companies that ended up becoming negative, you know, having an IPO and sustaining that valuation or getting bought for, you know, a couple billion dollars or $10 billion or, you know, $18 billion. So we have the, that, that group within, within the data set. And then I kind of filter out for only the same trends and patterns that still emerge and remain. I see. One of the other things I've been wondering about is the extent to which this fundraising strategy of more money faster is the correct strategy or has been successful perhaps, but that is a factor of the fundraising market and in a different fundraising market yeah. may have an advantage to spending less, being more lean. Is that possible? Yes, certainly. I mean, I'm a big advocate for, you know, doing what's best for the company at, at that point and, you know, having more money in the bank is is good and you know i recommend it to entrepreneurs but it it takes a very very good discipline of you don't necessarily have to spend that money 
can raise that. But if you have the discipline of still, you know, being lean and only, you know, spending that money, then you know there's product market fit. And that's a very hard thing to understand when you have product market fit. Are you, you know, adding more wood to the fire or are you kind of, you know, just artificially adding to, to your fire and spend it, you know, the fire will die soon. So I think that that's that's the big problem there that you, know, you should understand if you're investing in, in something that's working or you're investing in something that's leaking or you know, whatever you put in it, it's not going to have a real option. Right. Now, I remember in the dot-com era, there was a lot of talk of first mover advantage. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that was really overblown based on your data. That is correct. Yeah. You know, when, when I looked into, I looked at a lot of things about the idea and your pivots, competitive landscape to, you know, with the timing to the market or what I looked for is how many times was this exact idea repeated before this, right? How many cycles, how many different companies were doing this idea before this company that became a billion dollar company? And it turns out in most cases, these billion dollar companies were not the first. They were not even the first five. So if I think, if I remember the stat correctly, 40%, not even the first five, 30% within the first five, and then another 30% were the first, first to market, like the first companies to try out this idea. But 70% were not first, basically. So yeah, that's kind of, you know, but, and I think that's something that a lot of investors and, you know, entrepreneurs kind of know, but, you know, it's something that's probably more in the, in the popular lexicon of, you know, entrepreneurship about, you know, first mover advantage. And there's definitely, you know, advantages to, to being first mover, but there's, you know, a lot more advantages to having a better team and being more well-funded and being able to recruit better people and executing, you know, it's the small details, even when you look at you know, the, the history of ride sharing, you know, Uber and Lyft, but also there was this, this company before them sidecar that they had the first mover advantage and they had raised some money, but, you know, small details about how they could raise money or how much they could raise or who they could hire. And also small details about a product that sidecar has had this thing that people could choose the price and basically people and riders and drivers would agree upon a price before they, they take a ride. But, you know, Uber and Lyft, it was automatically determined. So, you know, small details in, in a product, small details of fundraising, the first company, the first mover advantage was out of, was gone. And then it was a second and third company that ended up, you know, riding this to the end. And so competition isn't always a bad thing. It could prove that there's a market there. What? Hundred percent. In fact, I think something by less than twenty percent, if I'm not wrong, only fifteen percent of companies that ended up becoming unicorns did not have any competition when they started. And you know, when you talk to entrepreneurs or when entrepreneurs talk to investors, that's one big kind of picture that they try to paint that you no know, one else is doing this, right? And it might be in a narrow sense that within you know exactly what you're doing, no one else is doing. But when you look at this space, you know, there's a lot of companies that are trying go and solving the same problem. And that's what I was looking at the data. And it turns out 85% of companies, they were competing with something. Now, the type of competitors you had that that determined, you know, the, the level of, you know, the rate of the success that, that you had. For example, going after incumbents. So if you're a company today and you're going after Google or Salesforce or Oracle or companies like that, when the data set, these companies, these types of com- competitors where the, the situations that these startups are more likely to become unicorns. The next one was fragmented market companies like Flex going into a market. Nobody has more than, you know, 5% market share. And then the kind of lesser levels of success comes from when you're competing with another startup 
And actually the worst case was when you're competing with other startups that are actually highly funded or funded better than you. That's kind of, you know, copying is a company that's working and they raise a ton of money. They're like one year ahead of you, two years ahead of you. That's the kind of situation where I saw in the data that, you know, that the chances of success became a little bit lower. That's interesting. You know, Bill Gross from Idealab talks about how timing is so important. Yes. That's a factor here. 100%. And I couldn't crack it. This is, this is, I'm not claiming I cracked everything else, but that was one of the hardest things to find because I couldn't see any patterns in the data. Uh, a number of companies were, you know, first to market a lot of, it seemed like anecdotally, the companies are succeeding that are closest to an inflection point. And that's what I'm talking in the book. For example, Plaid, this company that, you know, uh, is an API that you can basically retrieve your banking information and, you know, the, the other fintech companies use them. It came after, you know, the 2008 rules and the, you know, everything else that came afterwards. Part of it called the Dodd-Frank rule, whatever it is, that kind of, that enabled free access to that banking information that enabled that company. You could talk about a lot of crypto companies that within, with regards to this timing, you can talk about, you know, Snapchat and forward-facing cameras. You can talk about Uber and a lot of these, these different apps with the free access to GPS, right? So you could connect a lot of successful companies to some sort of an inflection point, but a lot of this could come post facto as well. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a ton, there's tens of thousands of companies that will launch at the right exact moment and did not become successful. So it's something that's, you know, very hard to crack the code of, and it might be one of the most important reasons why some companies succeed and others don't. So that being out of control, I, I, I'd rather, you know, invest in a great team and a, you know, great market. Right. It's so hard yeah, to do a study is. on that. And it's so hard to know ahead of time if you have the right timing. For sure. I mean, you know, the, a lot of, if you look into public market investors, a lot of great investors talk about, you know, you can, you can never time the market, right? You should be disciplined. And in that market, you know, basically the, the, the talk is, you know, buying to fantastic companies at a great price and let it ride out. And, you know, you don't have to worry about the market. It's kind of probably the same thing here. Like if you cannot crack the code of, you know, timing and what's the best timing for it, like what is the, what's now for your company? If, if you're an investor that can figure that out, fantastic. If not, it's like, you know, choose, choose great companies and great markets and you're, you're building a portfolio strategy. So just let it ride out. It's interesting. You said great company, great price. How do you feel about great company, good price? I, in, in venture capital, I don't think, not that it's irrelevant, but I think investors care less about that than saying I care less about that. That's that's a hundred percent a public market thing. In in the venture situation, you know, if you pay 10, 20% more in seed round or series A round, even a series B round, if that company works, doesn't matter at all. And there's because of this kind of the distribution, you can you can mess around your returns if you're overpaying for every company because you know the ones that work out and you know on average you're gonna have lower returns. But if you end up, you know, having to pay more for a company that ends up becoming successful, going in at, you know, 10 million valuation or 15 or 50 or 80 or 100 or 150, you know, doesn't make that big of a difference at the end of the day. If you're going to get a hundred or a thousand or 4,000 times your money, you, you could take another 10% off that you're saying. Exactly. Right. And, you know, it, it, would, it would reduce the returns, but it's much more costly if you're not in that company. So it's, it's 
because of the upside and downside scenarios that we have in venture, if you miss that company at that's whatever cheap, that's your biggest loss, not the fact that you could do it at 100 or 120. Now, did you look at the socioeconomic background of founders? I did not. And the reason is it's, it's very hard. It's you cannot, I, I basically looked into data and collected data that, that, you know, is kind of there. You could, you can prove it. You can find that number. If you put a number to it, you cannot really put a number to the socioeconomic background of um, now anecdotally. I mean, I looked at the stories of hundreds of companies. I interviewed, you know, a lot of people all the way from founders of Cloudflare, Yield Education and Nest and GitHub. And Instacart plus a lot of investors. And also I, I wrote these kind of case studies about probably there's a hundred companies uh, that I've written these kind of examples and stories in the book. I, I don't see enough socioeconomic diversity. And I think that that might be one of the biggest problems that, you know, in terms of diversity needs to be solved. There's a lot of good things that are happening in, in venture and, you know, more and more money is going to women and people of color. And that's fantastic. But I think the next frontier of that is the more and more money needs to go to people with, or more and more programs or things needs to happen to help make sure that people not in the best, you know, socioeconomic situation or back background end up being able to ha- take the risk and start companies and learn something from that process and, you know, go on from there. And that might be one of the least diverse things that at least anecdotally I could, I could see in the data. Well, thanks for sharing so much about the book. I hope people pick it up. I think it is interesting both to investors who are thinking about what makes a great founder and what should I be investing in? And also to founders so that you don't get confused by the other stories and myths out there about what it takes to be successful. Yeah. I mean, the, basically the gist of it is, you know, the, the, don't necessarily listen to the interviews that you see or the, the famous stories that you see online. There's a ton of different ways to, to start a billion dollar company. There's a ton of ways. And the main theme of the book, this idea of a super founder is and a lot of these cases, this, the pattern that emerged is a lot of these entrepreneurs start a company and that, that might not be successful, then start another company that, that, that ends up being like a $50 million exit. And then they start a third company. By this time, they've learned the ropes. They can hire, they can raise money. That will be their impactful company. That will be their biggest kind of billion dollar company. And I call these people super founders. And, you know, that's, that's why the, why the name of the book is super founders. And I'm doing a lot of things around super founders at this point. And that's the kind of pattern that I see. It's like, go and start a company, go and work on your idea and you might be successful. And that's fantastic. Even if not, don't be discouraged. Go and start another idea, go and start another company. And, you know, it's like everything practice makes perfect. And eventually you'll, you'll end up making it. If you go through this path that everybody has taken. None of these people had an overnight success. Then you go deep, they all started a project before, they all started a company before. Some of it succeeded, some of it failed. Eventually, they got to where they are today. This growth mindset about becoming a founder is really inspiring. I'm curious about how this has informed your own investing work. Yeah, I think when I, when I invest, I, I tend to pay less attention to where somebody went to school, what they studied, or where they worked, and more attention to what they've built before. It could be a company, it could be a project. Even if they're students, you know, they might have started some, some project of value, or they might be an entrepreneur with 20 years of experience. 
And I'm looking for those signs that this person has created something of value before, has been able to build something and sell something before. And now they're starting this company and now they have the resources. So I care about resourcefulness, thoughtfulness, and this kind of super founder pattern or journey, which is, you know, you've built something before, you've sold something before and are starting something now. And these are the things that I care a lot more than, you know, if somebody was an, you know, VP at Stripe or, you know, a graduate student at Stanford. And are there particular industries that you're interested in these days? So generally at DCBC, so we are, we are a $2.5 billion deep tech venture capital, you know, VC firm. We invest in companies that solve complex engineering and use kind of the latest science to solve trillion dollar global, very high impact problems. So we typically don't invest in pure software, but we don't invest in kind of pure SaaS or consumer social net, social media networks. What we invest in is rockets, satellites, new materials, you know, construction, robotics, drugs, therapeutics, the basic you know, things that are hard, things that, you know, sometimes come from the industry, sometimes come from universities. And within those, again, I, I, I'm, I look for founders first. That's my mentality. I, I find entrepreneurs and then, you know, I see if, if what they're doing is something that we can help with and we have experience with. But, you know, I think there, there's a bunch of these areas that I would also encourage a lot of entrepreneurs, those who have started companies before and have had an exit and are now thinking about something more impactful or even, you know, first-time entrepreneurs, there's a lot of problems in this world that there's no specific person's problem. And that kind of goes back to what we talked about solving a personal problem. Climate change is nobody's personal problem at this point. But it's a global scale problem or, you know, a lot of things in agriculture and food or, you know, high level impact or politics. A lot of these things are not one specific person's problem, but these are trillion dollar challenges that, you know, if, if you're starting companies, you're going through the trouble of, you know, risking your career, risking your, you know, livelihood, risking, you know, all the mental challenges that comes with a startup you may as well want to solve something that's bigger than yourself. And that would be a fantastic way to recruit a team that's motivated to work. It would be a fantastic way for the entrepreneur to go on, you know, every day with challenges to continue working on these problems. So I think there's a lot of opportunities in, in construction and housing and basically being able to build infrastructure cheaper, building cities, building bridges, building transportation, and a lot of these things cheaper and more accessible. I think there's a lot of things that we can do in new materials, materials for, again, for construction, for building stuff for biology, for, you know, things that are cleaner, a lot of opportunities in food and agriculture, and, you know, generally anything that, that you look, look into these, you know, you go and look at trillion dollar industries, it's like mining and agriculture and materials. These are the things that all of these are much bigger than the technology ecosystem. These are much bigger than IT. It's much bigger than, you know, the typical areas that, that the startups get built on. And there's a lot of opportunities there. Sales cycles might be longer and they might have a specific challenges. But, you know, when you look at these, a lot of these are $50 million contracts with, with massive large companies in agriculture or in, in other areas. So that's kind of what uh, I hope a lot more entrepreneurs end up starting these deep tech, impactful, global scale companies going after trillion dollar challenges rather than, you know, tech for tech problems. So big industries, big problems that are about more than what you might experience day to day yourself, but really impact us all. Yes, 100%. And any tips for founders who don't know these industries to learn about them? 
Well, it's good to go after, you know, something that, that you might be passionate about, or, you know, somebody who's, you know, passionate about it and you can, you can, you know, form, form a team, or if, even if you're going at it alone, it doesn't, doesn't matter, but you need to create a, a unique advantage for, for yourself. Right. I, we, I talked about, they didn't have domain expertise. It, it doesn't mean these entrepreneurs went on and blindly started a company. They spent two years, three years talking to everybody learning more than anyone that's there and then bringing their own other unique skills to that industry. So it's not like, you know, just blindly saying, okay, I want to go and solve something in agriculture or whatever. You should spend, you know, a couple of years learning more than anybody else. You know, even if your job isn't something else, just like interviewing people, going and talking to, to people, going to speaking with the entrepreneurs who were previously here, going to investors who, who have spent, you know, time in, within these industries. But, you know, one thing I normally do is like, Go, go to Wikipedia or online and look at you know, what are the biggest industries in different countries. It turns out, you know, some countries aquaculture, like fishing might be a big industry. In others, it's like timber and some it's a steel and some it's, you know, there are different countries with different massive industries. And depending on where you are and how you, you know, you're uniquely can learn more than anybody else about a specific industry. That's a good way to, to go at it. So do your homework. Just like you did with spending four years gathering the data for this book. Yeah, there's no shortcuts. <laughs> yeah. Anything else you want to share for aspiring entrepreneurs? Well, I think, you know, think big, solve very large, very impactful problems, and look at it as a journey. I mean, for, for entrepreneurs, pick a great idea, spend a lot of time recruiting and get, get a great team together. It doesn't, doesn't mean that they're your co-founders. But it's okay. You, you may even want to give the co-founder title to five people. It's okay. As long as you can bring the best set of people around the table, do that. And then, you know, go at it. And if it's not successful, pick it up. Hopefully, you know, you have enough resources to keep on going and just change that idea or start another company. And that's the story for a lot of these successful, you know, founders. If you do not succeed, don't think that mm, my story doesn't look like Zuckerberg's, right? Because he succeeded in the first time around. And you go and actually look at it. A lot of these entrepreneurs have failed and a lot of ideas before as well. And we don't hear about them as much. So just go and do it again. And this time you're more likely to succeed. And even if it fails the second time around, go at it. Hopefully, you know, by, by the third time you, you're at it, you've started a massive successful company. Don't give up. Keep building. I love don't it. Give up. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great. Thank you for the great question. I, I hope the listeners enjoyed this. And how can they follow up uh, if they want to learn about you or the book? So the book book's name is Super Founders, What Data Reveals About Billion Dollar Companies. It's, it's available everywhere on Amazon or Audible and you know in every format, Kindle as well. I'm on Twitter, Ali Tamasap, LinkedIn as well. You can you can do me on uh, any of these platforms. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Miles. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.